Welcome to Storytelling with me, your host, Bissy B. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the first episode of 2019 with our guest, Dr. Placid Bone. I'll be reading from chapter four in her book called Mortality and Magic, Facts and Fairy Tales for the Hereafter. This book deals with death because we plan a lot for life, but we never plan for death. And if there is one thing that we all have in common, it is the fact that we are going to die. How we choose to handle death is another story. Placid Bone MD combines the best of Eastern medicine and Western science, mortality and magic, facts and fairy tales for the hereafter, weaves together proven medical insight and parodies of classical fairy tales into a humorous guide on the ups and downs of death and dying. It is a good book on dying well. While becoming a board-certified physician, Dr. Bone studied mortality around the world and received a medical degree from New York University and emergency medicine training at Harvard and Yale. Placid lives in Brooklyn, New York, with three boys who claim to be her offspring and a poet who is the alleged donor of their extraordinary genetic code. Dr. Boone has attended countless dying moments with her patients. This is not a slight on her medical expertise, but a testament that every day death is near and especially so in the emergency department. Chapter 4. The How. Fact. There are four ways to die. Do you recall the time you spent going through puberty? The bodily changes were predictable with a start and a finish. Dying is no different. Experts in end-of-life care categorize dying into four groups. People will die either sudden death, terminal illness, organ failure, or my favorite, good old-fashioned fragility. Although the focus of Western medicine is on prolonging life, it is possible and necessary to define when dying has begun for patients and the benefit of caregivers. Doctors can offer a calculation of weeks to months. If the doctor is wrong, you get to live another day or less. If you have a terminal illness and live in constant pain so that even breathing hurts, this may not be good news. You may be grateful for one more day to spend time with someone special. Wait, Dr. Do-Good, you demand while resisting the urge to roll your eyes. Which category do I fit into? I am not terminally ill. I don't have a disease like diabetes or hypertension, and I'm only 42. So fragility for me is many decades away, to which the doctor hastily replies, all of us are in the sudden death category until we are not. The best way to remove yourself from this category is to wear your seatbelt, avoid firearm usage, and get regular medical checkups, especially if an immediate family member has died suddenly. Another way to not die suddenly is to develop a chronic disease through a lifetime of excess. If death does not swipe you away from a massive heart attack, 
then overeating, drinking too much, and smoking will probably result in a chronic disease. All chronic illnesses over time lead to organ failure. In Western countries, the organs that fail most commonly are lungs, liver, kidneys, and the heart. Aside from a transplant, no cure exists as of today. There are medicines and machines that will temporarily, for several decades, perform the function of your failed organs. Patients either forget to take the medicine or get tired of using the machines, accelerating the failure of these organs. In heart failure, a patient unable to breathe rushes to the hospital. These visits become more frequent. Initially, once a year, then every six months, until you are hospitalized every month. Your family no longer dashes to the hospital with concerns and fright because now you are there every week. They see it as just like the last time. Until you are dead, this visit to the hospital seems like every other time. You fully expect to go home. Weekly visits to the hospital because of your organ failure indicate that dying has begun. You have six weeks to six months left to live. Dying from a terminal illness has been studied. Perhaps through no fault of your own, you picked the short straw in the gamble of genetics. You discover a lump in your breast that you ignore as impossible to be cancer given your youthful age of 29. By the time you see a doctor, the news is not good. The tumor is now squatting in your lungs and colon. Your illness is terminal. After failed chemotherapy and radiation, you have less than one year remaining to live. Fragility is your first year of life in reverse. When you were a baby, you went from lying on your back to rolling over sitting up, standing and walking, or within 12 months. People dying from fragility are often non-ambulatory and completely bedbound, which sounds so damning until you remember that so was every baby for their first six months. Within a year, a baby goes from being able to see only a distance of three feet to awareness of a medley of colors, sounds and shapes. Interviews with caregivers reveal that during the last year of life, many elderly and frail persons do not recognize their faces or even close relatives. The final contrast between a blossoming baby and a withering fell person is language. As a baby, you went from crying to cooing to babbling to your first words during your first year of life. If you are in the category of fragility, whether from dementia or a stroke in your last year of life, your speech will slow down and oftentimes become nonsensical gibberish. In the words of the famous Bob Marley, once a man and twice a child, and everything is just for a while. Included in this last category of dying is the ability to sense that death is close. There are countless stories of yogis who knew death was approaching. The Buddha at the age of 80 knew his death was intimate. Call it intuition, spiritual advancement, or just plain luck. He gathered his followers, they cleared a space for him on the ground, and he simply laid down on his right side and exhaled his last breath. I am certain, as Eastern philosophers teaches, this can be learned by anyone. Through proper breathing and meditation, one can know 
with certainty that one's last moments are near. A trajectory is a path. Like a map, it is given direction and length of time from point A to point B. A dying trajectory gives you an idea of the terrain ahead to traverse. Death from terminal illness is narrow with rocky hills. Death from organ failure is filled with long stretches of open highway and swooping valleys. Death from fragility is across bridges and through tunnels, each time emerging with less than you began. Fewer words, decreased awareness of your surroundings and diminished ability to walk and stand. Fragility is in many ways a returning to the womb. Here are some clues that you are dying. Are you visiting the emergency department more frequently because you cannot breathe? Because your lungs and your heart are failing? Are you coming down with pneumonia or infections of the urinary tract because your immune system is weakening? Is your family considering placing you in a nursing home because you keep falling and have increased memory loss? If you answer yes to any of these questions, death is approaching. You may feel sad, but also feel relieved. Everyone knows what is happening. Your family may have a difficult time accepting that dying has begun. They feel that acceptance of death is given up on living. Knowing that you will die next year puts into perspective that impending foreclosure. While finding out that you have only two weeks left to live may force you to reconcile sooner with your surly relative. If you had one day to live, you would choose your words carefully. A glass of water would bring intense pleasure. There is power in information. Dialogue about when dying has begun will help you and your family prepare for your departure. In traditional Tibetan households, the doctor is called in at the time of death and whispers gently into the dying person's ear. You are dying. It's okay. Let go. Hi, good morning. Good morning. You? I'm amazingly fabulous. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for calling. And, well, thanks so much for reaching out to me. And thanks for taking the time to read my book. I really appreciate it. I loved your book. I wanted to say that you gave me a lot of food for thought, stuff that I would never have thought of. It's really important to educate people. And I think in this country, especially, death is something that we try not to talk about. What I wanted to know, the questions that I wanted to get into is, there are over 40 specialist doctors. Why did you choose your specialty? Oh, yeah. So that's a good question. So for uh, two main reasons, I studied a lot of Ayurvedic medicine, so which is like the India's old, oldest healing system. So it's basically like ancient Indian medicine. And, you know, it's about 5,000 years old, whereas uh, Western medicine is about a couple hundred years old. And I just felt knowing that I've, you know, I've been there, I've been to India several times to study it, that I've seen them cure diabetes, I've seen them cure asthma. And these are diseases here in Western medicine that just people just are just labeled with and they just live with for the rest of their lives. So I don't, basically Western medicine can't cure those things. So I couldn't with a good conscience really practice that kind of medicine. So emergency medicine, we're very good at like quick fixes, which is what Western medicine is good at. So you get shot, we can sew you up, you get stabbed, we can fix you. Um, 
And so I felt with a good conscience, I can practice that kind of medicine. So that was really what led me to that. And then the second reason was that as a mother, like I realized it's a great lifestyle fit for working women because it's sort of like nursing work where we, we start at a certain time, we finish at a certain time. So, you know, I don't have to spend like accidentally spend an extra five hours in the hospital. So, yeah. So that, that was the, the main reason for okay. that. So you see de- your death every day, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I work at a trauma center. So I work at, in downtown L.A., right, which is near Skid Row. And um, so we see there's lots of gun violence. You know, there's like the Korean gangs, there's the Mexican gangs, and then there's the black gangs. So, you know, it's 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 sad, but true. But there's always, you know, some, you know, 17 to 30 year old male coming in with some sort of stab wound or gunshot wound. And so that's usually when somebody comes in with with a penetrating wound, which is what a you know a stab wound or a gunshot wound is. It's, so this guy had come in with multiple gunshot wounds, and he came in alive, like he was talking to us, and then he he became unconscious. So the what we did was we cracked open his chest with a it's sort of very you know rudimentary with like basically like a a knife and a what you're saying, like a block. Um, so you crack over his chest and then you spread it open with a rib spreader. And then you locate the heart to see if there's a bullet wound in the heart. So it's me and the trauma surgeon at the bedside. And the trauma surgeon is looking uh, to sew up the, the hole that was in the back of his heart. And I was pumping, you know, using my hand to pump his heart uh, while we uh, sewed up the hole. And um, he made it to the operating room, like, so they could sew up the rest of the holes, but he did not survive. Every day. And so is that what motivated you to write Mortality and Magic? Yes, that's exactly it, because I see, so this hospital, you know, it's a lot of young people, right? So granted, you know, they're not thinking about death. The other hospitals I worked at, it's a lot of geriatric population so people who are 80s 90s and 100s and remarkably they've never thought of it you know and I so I saw a lot of people who were that age who were in their 80s and 90s and especially with like advanced dementia cancer you know like these sort of terminal illnesses that eventually you know you're going this is going to overtake you like we're all going to die but you know, some of us are going to die sooner and later. And they just had no plan. And then, you know, with, especially with diseases like cancer and dementia, like eventually they stop eating, right? So when they stop eating, what do you do? You put in a feeding tube. So then they're being fed through this piece of plastic. And then they stop breathing. So what do you do? You either put them on the breathing machine or you put a breathing tube in their neck. So then they have that <laughs> that piece of plastic and then they can't pee properly. So then they have a piece of plastic, you know, in their penis or their, their, their bladder. And so they have all this plastic in them helping them keep them alive. And either the doctor hasn't talked to them or the family has not ready to let go, which is understandable. 
but there's just no plan about when that day comes about where they want it. And, you know, you just remember like when you went through puberty or I don't know if you have children when you have kids, like there's definitely stages of it. So when you go through puberty, they tell you, okay, first you're going to, this is going to happen to your body. And then this is going to happen to your body. And this is going to happen to your body. And the same thing with pregnancy, like this is going to happen. This, there's like a definite stage. And it's the same thing with, with dying. Like there are stages, predictable stages and that you can plan for and that make make everyone's involvement, including the patient who's about to die and the family member have a sort of trajectory of like, oh, okay, this is this is what they told me that's going to happen. This is what I can expect. So there are no surprises along the way. And prizes part, I think, really helps people to come to terms with what is happening because they, they know, and knowledge is power, as they say. Exactly. So you know that your uh, loved one is going to maybe, the stop breathing obviously is the last one, right? Or right. The, but they can still hear you, like even if they can't talk to you. Um, and maybe they maybe they can still talk to you. And like those final words that a dying person says are better than gold. You know, like if, if people carry that with them for the rest of their life, these are the last words my father told me. These are the last words my son told me or whatever, you know. So to maintain that open level of communication is, is uh, key. What stood out immediately was the size of your book. Now, when I did some research and other books um, surrounding death, they all tend to be quite large and clunky, which in a sense is how people think of death, really large and clunky, and they try to ignore now, yours is a pocketbook size. Was that a deliberate choice on your part, or and if so, why? I wanted it to be for that stage of dying, like that. It's, it's like a three month to zero time period, right? You're gonna, you know, my family member is gonna die in the next three months, and this is what I can expect. It's not for, you know, I have the rest of my life. Let me think about this. It's really for that that dying period. And so people can just digest it in very small bits. And it's and I wanted it very straightforward. The, the who, what, where, and when. This is where I want to die. And there's only three places that you can die, right? If you're planning for it, you either die at home, you die in some sort of hospital or hospice situation. Or if you don't plan for it, then you, you know, suddenly you die, you can die anywhere. But at least you have that in your mind. Oh, okay, there's only three places I can die. So let me just choose one, you know, and who do you want around you when you die? So yeah, I want my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, or I want to just be by myself. You know, that's a choice too. So I wanted it to be very succinct and small. And I felt like the fairy tales kind of took the edge away of the scariness of it. But, you know, like you can read the book in maybe an hour, if that, if that long, and then you don't even have to read it in order. You can just sort of read it like, oh, okay, I want to figure out this part or that part, you know. I really uh, wanted it just to be something very quick and hopefully light, a little bit of lightheartedness to it, not so like heavy that, you know, like let's, let's just accept it. You know, we talk about our finances, you talk about every, all these other hard topics. Well, you said you, you wanted it to be lighthearted and the fairy tale chapter is, isn't a chapter per se like the others. It's a standalone. Well, why did you make that choice? Yeah. So there's, with the Pinocchio, there's like three uh, little piggies, Sleeping Beauty, The Wizard of Oz. I just thought it would be great to have these fairy tales in our, of our childhood. Like what happens if they grow old? 
because they're sort of young forever, you know? And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be great just to think about the choices that these heroes that we hold up from The Wizard of Oz, like there's so many generations that have grown up with these characters as they're young and lighthearted and they, they solve these other problems in their lives. But what if, what if they were to grow old and, and, and what kind of choices would they make? And we can relate to them as Dorothy, like trying to find her way home. Like we all kind of go through our life trying to figure out, wait, what does home mean to me? Or, you know, I miss my home or, you know, if you're an immigrant or you're a college student or whatever it is, you know, so those kind of decisions. And then like Winnie the Pooh, you know, I was thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be great if he just grew old and made a decision about his dying and then we can relate to him in that way. And I don't know if Disney would let me, but I was like, I'd love to see that in the movie. <laughs> Kill him <laughs> off just once. <laughs> Bring him back. Well, I loved it because um, what it did for me was it um, made me think about death without feeling, oh my God, I really have to think about my death right now. I was actually thinking about my death. Such a wonderful way that I wanted to take care of it right there and then. I started, I got out a pen and paper and thought, mm, who do I want around me? And because it didn't feel so heavy and I really appreciated that. For instance... On television, somebody's crashing. They say, get the crash card. And they rush out and they do the CPR and, you know, everyone does what they do and everyone's smiling at the end. They save that person's life. By the time I was reading that section that you wrote, I had no idea what really goes into CPR. Is this something that you found while you're working in trauma that people, they didn't realize this was what's really involved? Is that why you wrote it? Right, yeah. So the language that we have as doctors is, is is really outdated in terms of like, you know, what we say and then what the media portrays, you know, so CPR, you, you know, you see the, the doctors rushing in and they push on the chest and then you see the flat line for a couple seconds on the, on the monitor and that you hear that, that monotonous beep. And then finally, a couple seconds later, it starts again, beep beep, 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 and everyone sighs, and there's an exhale, and oh, you brought her back to life. No, that's not at all that happens, you know, especially if you're elderly. It's usually like a 200-pound man pushing on your chest. Your ribs are going to be broken. We're going to put you on a breathing machine, right, which is we put a tube in your throat. You're on a machine, so it for it's forcing air into your lungs, and, you know, we're giving you medicine to make you sleepy, that you probably can't remember and pain medicine to make you comfortable. Depending on your state of health, you may never get off that breathing machine and you're, you'll be in a lot of pain because your ribs are broken. Then, you know, you get a pneumonia and you get all these other complications and you may never be able to say goodbye to your loved ones, you know, and that's, that's something that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. It's something that is unsettling to a lot of people, but nobody wants to make that decision for you, right? So nobody wants to say, no, don't do that. So that's why it's not fair to leave that just up to chance. Because once the doctors say, do you want us to do everything we can? No one's going to say no to that for their loved ones. But the question really is, can we make your loved one comfortable? And everybody will 
say yes to that. The two aren't always the same thing. So CPR isn't necessarily making your loved one comfortable, especially if they have a terminal illness or really advanced dementia, that kind of thing. That's not making them comfortable by putting them on a machine and pressing on their heart and breaking their ribs. There's now a change in dialogue about let's allow a natural death, right? The AND, I talked about that. It's exactly what it says, you know, let's make them comfortable, but there are going to be no like heroic measures, which probably may not work anyway. And, you know, people in the medical community, if you ask them, they're like, oh, definitely for myself and for my loved one, I don't want to be on a machine. I don't want anyone pushing on my chest. Please let me go. You know, please let me have a natural death. And do you think um, a lot of it is because we don't talk about death enough as a society? I think a lot of it is that. But I think, you know, I, you know Hollywood also has, this, you know, I think there's now more responsibility among movie and TV producers because they see how influential they can be in shaping public perception. So I think there has to be more of that, of, of showing like, no, we really, this, these heroic measures, even though they make for a great story, are not real life. So I think a lot of that comes from the, the images and the movies and the TVs that we see. I know a lot of the scripts, the movie scripts have like doctors on them who are trying to give like more of a real life way of this is what really happens. So hopefully there's more of that. So this is a message to all my fellow writers. Take note. CPR isn't all smiles and glory. Was it important for you to have humor in writing this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think life has a sense of humor. And I think, you know, my favorite line in the book is that life created death because, you know, we needed to know what to do with a fool because a fool might come along and just oust us all. But it's like an equal sum game for everybody, no matter how much good you do on the planet or how much bad you do on the planet. Ultimately, you're going to have your, your last day and that's okay. And I think throughout my life, I mean, just even working in the hospital, some of the just crazy stories that we hear, they're just so funny and you can't make it up. I mean, some of it is sad. Yeah, some of it is sad, but just the irony that at every turn of life, there's there's always some kind of humor. And I think if you can keep that in your heart, it makes it less heavy to let go. I agree. I know in my own personal head, I've come to grips with death. And if I am to go, I am to go. On my own epitaph, it will read, here lies a woman who pays no more taxes. <laughs> and that's how I see me going out. I want to go back to when you talked about the Indian medicine. How did you originally find out about it? So my family is, we're from Guyana, South America, and, you know, half the population is Indian, like from India. They came as indentured servants and half is African from slavery. So my grandmother's Hindu and my father's also a physician. So he studied Indian and Chinese medicine. So through those two venues, I got interested in studying Ayurvedic medicine. And just, you know, the medicine, not only is it ancient, it's not like one size fits all, just take this pill and it'll work. You know, they have a whole uh, system where they have these three different body types. And depending on which body type you are, you can say, oh, I'm more prone to upper respiratory infections. So I need to stay away from milk. 
or I'm more prone to um, back pain. So I need to stay away from like really dry foods or I'm more prone to anger. And, you know, there are people who, you know, just sweat all the time and who are always so hot. So those people should stay away from alcohol because alcohol creates a lot of heat in the body. That's how I got interested in studying it. And it's just, it's really fascinating because when you incorporate it into your own life and it, it's so simple, right, just to stay away from these foods or to add these foods. So I practice it a lot with my patients, but also with my family, you know, as, as a mother and partner, it really works to keep you healthy and a very low, low, low maintenance and low budget, you know, it's just preventative medicine. That's what it is. It's mostly preventative medicine. And also, you know, yoga as a lifestyle in terms of like the deep breathing exercises to help better lung function to decrease pneumonia and stuff like that where can people find out more information about this do you have a website can people contact you directly yeah they can contact me directly my book is available on amazon it's mortality and magic facts and fairy tales of the hereafter my email is placidbone at gmail.com I'm excited to uh, spread the word about this. Are you available for panel discussions? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I live in L.A., but I travel back and forth to New York a lot. I would be honored. All right. I can't let you go until we talk about your name. Oh, right. <laughs> when your husband told me your name, I was like, really? <laughs> Tell me more about your first name. Where is it from? I think I had hippie parents. They wanted to name my older brother Sunshine, uh, but they didn't do that. So I think they, it's it's placid. It means peaceful, and they wanted a peaceful child. And Bone is my real last name. And um, like I said, my dad is a Dr. Bone. I'm a Dr. Bone. It's a fortunate name because, yeah, people do remember it. People do remember it. So I'm lucky. Yep. I'm lucky about that. So, But, yeah, it just means people. Now, at the back of the book, you have a little questionnaire, which I appreciated. Uh, the dilemma, complete, save and share. Oh, yeah. So this is if you want to plan your own uh, dying and make it easy for your family and do the responsible thing. Right. So you answer those questions for yourself about where you want to die, who you want to be around, what you want to be there. If you want pain medicine, oxygen, suctioning. If you want your favorite dog to be there, your favorite blanket, if you want what kind of music you want played, then you answer those questions. Give them to your loved ones. You don't have to look at it ever again if you don't want to. Sign it so that they know that it's, it's you. And, um, and rest assured knowing that your last wishes will be taken care of. And then share it you know, with other people. And I think it takes some of the responsibility off of other people for making this decision for you. And it also keeps you in control. And the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, there's a, a whole body of medicine. I think I talked about it, about the placebo effect and, you know, what you, your thoughts and your words create your reality. If age is just a number, then decide on that number about how long you want to live. And so be it. So if you only want to live till you're 80, go ahead. Me, I'm going to live till I'm 100. I'm going to be healthy and die in my sleep. That's how I would like to go. So I think if you can decide that number for yourself, your loved ones will appreciate you for it. I think that's a really good thing. Because, you know, ever since I was a child, I actually had a number in my head. I said, I'm going to live till I'm 85. I've, I've, stre- I've stretched that now. Um, <laughs> <'cause> I- <laughs> As you get closer, right? As you get closer, you're like, mm, yeah. 
I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day, for coming on the show. Well, I so appreciate this. This is really a great way to start the new year. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode. Remember to subscribe, share, and go to our website, Storytelling with B-I-S-I-B.com. Submit your stories. Come on the show. Let's talk about it. Let's change the narrative together. Storytelling with Bissy B can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Until next time, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and stay blessed. <laughs>